Will you open up your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 11? What we're going to do this morning is read uh, the first 26 verses of this chapter. Uh, last week we covered the table of nations. That way when we arrive at chapter 11, you don't, you don't go, how did we go from eight people getting off a boat to a whole uh, nations, it would seem, surrounding each other and uh, speaking one language and building some uh, amazing structure. So last week showed us uh, how uh, from Noah's sons the earth was to be filled so that when we come to this week we have that understanding. You might ask why do we have a passage like this? I think it, uh, with many of the, the, the passages of the Word of God which never seems to hold back when it shows us man's problem. Every character that arises has a sin problem. We see it with David. We see it with Abram, as we'll see in a couple weeks. Uh, the Lord doesn't hold back. Why? As an example for us. In fact, that's what it says in 1 Corinthians. That we might read something like this and see it as an example, and often as an example of how not to live. So this morning, uh, we will examine several things when we um, turn to this passage as we seek to answer the question, the way to heaven. Uh, let me pray before we read God's Word. Our gracious God, we thank You for Your Word that's set before us. It's perfect. It has no error. It tells us all about You, God, of Your power and, and the wonder of who You are, Your awesome works and Your deeds, Lord, and of Your mercy. How gracious You are. How gracious You are to a people that You would speak to them and tell us, Lord, what You command, what You love, what it means to be saved. And so this morning, Father, we pray, as your word is read, you speak to us and that we might be a people who hear and understand, that you might transform our hearts, that you would uh, cause us to trust in you, to have faith, to believe you at your word. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be at work and that your son Jesus would be known. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Verse 1 of chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. These are the generations of Shem. 
When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arkpashad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arkpashad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arkpashad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arkpashad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. When Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sereg. And Reu lived after he fathered Sereg 207 years and had other sons and daughters. And Sereg had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sereg lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived, to father, uh, Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 19, 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is God's word for his people. Amen. Uh, this morning, we'll consider four points from our passage as we seek to answer the question, what is the way to heaven? These people have come up with their own idea of what it looks like to ascend to heaven. So we will look at four things. One, obedience. Two, human effort. Three, self-worship. And four, God's way. Obedience. Chapter 11 Uh, has come after a a great flood, and God gave them instruction in Genesis 9-1. He said, just like He said to Adam and Eve, go and multiply and fill the earth. You can see the problem then as we come to 11. Here we see God shows us why there's such diversity uh, in the world and why there's such diversity in languages. In fact, in the world, there's over 7,000 languages. I once had the privilege to go teach in Africa. And before we ever arrived in Africa, we had uh, in Uganda, we had to send the material that we were going to teach so that they would translate it into Lugandan. Because the issue was, in a room of 100 people, we had maybe 15 languages represented. So that even the idea of going and speaking about the Word of God and the good news of God, it had its challenges in communicating. It meant that we needed a translator. And so often, you only get to speak about three or four words and you have to stop so that the translator can then speak those words to the people that are listening. And Sometimes it's a little concerning when you've said four words and the translator says 20 words. And people laugh, and what you said wasn't funny. (laughs) There could be all kinds of problems. Getting the exact meaning across was sometimes a barrier. When we look at a passage like this, we can marvel at the diversity of mankind and of the languages around the world. But at the same time, at the same moment, 
it is clear that something is wrong in the world. And at the core of this difficulty is the fact that because of sin, the barrier of communication is actually a judgment of God. As others talked uh, in Africa, uh, in the room with me, sometimes it was babble in my ears, it was confusion, and it was disorienting. When we have these troubles communicating, it's an audible monument to disobedience, a verbal reminder of the effects of man's sin in chapter 11. Man's begun to spread out after the flood. They've migrated from the east. That draws our mind to what happened in the Garden of Eden. He sends them out eastward, banishment from Eden, and Adam and Eve were sent out to the east. And here we have these people moving to the east. And it, it, it serves as a little reminder of the steps of rebellion uh, of what happened in the garden. And we come to verse 1 and 2. They had one language and the same words. Presumably this was the language that God was communicating to Adam and Eve with, to, to Noah. And He had given the people in the common tongue instruction and revelation. And in that, He expected obedience. You see, clarity of language is vital to communicating God's purpose and His intent. If we go all the way back to the fall we would see how important it is that God spoke clearly and that His people would listen. In fact, that's why Satan, his temptation really is to say to Adam and Eve, did God really say? He wasn't just asking for clarification there. He was really after whether or not Adam and Eve would be obedient to what God had commanded. And if they were obedient, God was clear. You will have everlasting life. Can we at least agree that obedience to God has some sweet promises to it? Well, because they weren't obedient, Sin will now infect not just Adam and Eve, but all mankind and man's will to not obey God, but to do as we see fit, as our heart wants. This is the raging problem in your very being. So that when we arrive at verse 2, we see that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and what did they do? They settled there. Is this what God said to do? To settle? I mean, you might say, okay, what's the big deal? It's probably awesome land to plant crops, to grow a family, to grow a nation. That's not what this is about. This is about what did God say and what did the people do? He told them to disperse and fill the earth. It's an act of rebellion. It was indicative of a much larger issue in people. It was indicative of the condition of man's heart. Disobedience is an effect of the fall. It makes us, listen, this is what sin does. God has authority, and here we sit, 
and sin is shaking your fist at the heavens and saying, I'm going to do it my way. But you don't even have to train children to do that, by the way. These little babies, I mean, before they can even speak, you're trying to put food in their mouth, which is good for them, and they go, they move away, right? Or they spit it out. They don't want it. Rebellion happens immediately. Sin says, God, I don't need your advice. I don't need your instruction. The result of disobedience then here is the confusion of language. It's a marker for us that God expects obedience. Brothers and sisters, children, listen. God expects obedience from His children. In fact, obedience is a sign that we love God. Kids, you probably don't think of it this way. Look, kids, when you don't obey your parents, what does that tell them? Tell them, I don't, I don't need you. I don't care what you have to say. I know better than you. Adults, it's the same for us. 1 John 2 says, by this, we know that we have come to know him. We keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Obedience is then wrapped up in assurance for us that we know God. And if we know him and love him, we want to obey him and serve him. This is the very thing that we see the opposite of in our passage. They settle in Shinar. Not simply because it's fertile land, but because they ultimately want to make a name for themselves and to usurp God's authority. They aren't just after building a city or a tower. They are after a throne. A throne that that has them taking over God's rule and authority. Every time you sin, this is your reason. I won't have a king over me. I will rule myself. And God's so gracious that He let them settle there as one people. What if God lets you settle in your sin? Can't you see by example that God is not content to let it be so? Who's Lord of your life? Who sits on the throne of your heart? Are you calling the shots or is God? And how do your daily actions reveal whom you are serving? Our first point, the way to heaven is by obedience to God's word. And of course, that's the dilemma for us, isn't it? Uh, Sproul says the first act of disobedience was cosmic treason. Have you ever thought about your sin in, in that light? I mean, oftentimes we want to describe our sin as, you know, I, I made a mistake. Or, uh, you know, it was just a little misstep. It was just a poor choice. Sin is cosmic treason. We're guilty. 
And yet the way to heaven is obedience. We are guilty and it's obedience. And each sin then heaps up on us this, this, this result of cosmic treason until we are being crushed by it. And the problem is that obedience, if we were to say, okay, fine, obedience, Lord. Obedience in one matter doesn't undo or cover up our disobedience in another matter. That's not the way it works. We need perfect obedience. This is why faith is involved. We need faith in Him who was perfectly obedient. If we are ever to ascend to heaven, I will leave that solution for our last point. But suffice it to say, God delights in obedience. And He requires it. But then let us not confuse our obedience as our second point, human effort. The resolve of the people in chapter 11 is to start building. Let us make bricks, they say. It's interesting that they decide to get creative here. All around them were the hard rocks of the earth that God had crafted and made by His own hands. And instead, they set their minds to see if they can do better. Let us make some bricks, they say, verse 3. Bricks for stone. It's subtle. But let my hands fashion my own way to heaven is the result. Verse 4, they say, Come, let us build for ourselves not for God's glory for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens if anything in the Bible screams that our heart is an idol making factory is it not this let me do something for myself something that pleases me something for my name something for my sake despite the glorious God let it result in my self I will fashion for myself something that screams my own glory and power. You see, they're in the business here of God replacement theology. I don't need you, God. I can do it. Is there anything I cannot do? I, I can undo the fall even, right? This must be these people's thinking. If I can set my mind to it, I can do something just as glorious as the God who fashioned the earth. That was part of the serpent's promise, by the way. It wasn't just did God actually say, but he said, you know what? If you eat of this thing, you will actually become like God yourself. Your eyes will be open like him. He's actually holding you back, people, from your true potential. And no doubt, what they were building was a, a, a marvel of human ingenuity, for God took notice of it, and He said, this is just the beginning of what these people will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. He's not being fearful here. He simply means man was created to reflect the glory of God, that this is a part of image bearing, that these people were made in the image of God with all this creativity, with these minds and these wills that can do glorious things. I mean, think of the, the marvels that man is capable of. 
Uh, we often think of these past cultures, these kind of people as Neanderthals that are running around and, and banging rocks together. But archaeologists can't even figure out how they built these structures that they built so long ago. These structures, by the way, that are still enduring. What about man today? We figured out how to genetically produce humans. We're able to cure diseases. We can instantly translate languages just by holding our phone out and saying, speak into it. And then we know the language. It seems like, wow, we can even undo what's happening in Babel. We can see a baby in the womb. We can land on the moon. We can fly in the air. What can man not do if he sets his mind to it? And how about when men come together? We can crowdsource just about anything in a day, raise the money to accomplish it, and do marvelous things. We can kickstart any idea, and when people come together, it seems like there is no limit to what we can accomplish. And these people have come together to see if they might even storm the heavens where God is. We can go up to heaven, they say, if we just put our minds and our hands together and build this thing. Whatever the indomitable human spirit can dream up for itself, this much is true. That we will never surmount or overcome the magnitude of our, of our sin. And never will we span the great chasm that is between us an unholy and sinful people and a holy and perfect and righteous God, you will never build that bridge. This means then, human effort, no amount of chest thumping or human achievement or determination of will will satisfy this one problem that you can't overcome. It is our sin. You will never bring yourself out of its debt or its prison. That's why Romans 5 says, when did you receive salvation? While we were still sinners and weak, Christ died for us. You know why? So that you can't thump your chest and boast. You know what's happening here? Satire. Man cannot ascend to God by his works, nor can he bear to stand in God's holy presence with his sin. Say they built a tower that went up to heaven. What man can look at God and live, God says about himself. And to show that it's satire, look how God reacts. It says he looks down upon their great works and says, oh, let us go down and see this tower that they're building. This doesn't imply that God isn't everywhere at all times. It is a scorching sentence that Mo Moses records here meant to say that man's best efforts are so inadequate that it is hardly even a thing. This draws to mind Psalm 2. It says the kings set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And it says that the people say, let us cast him away. But it says, but he who sits in the heavens laughs at the satire of it and holds them in derision. 
what you must know. Human works will never be enough to ascend to heaven. Nor will God's reign ever be overthrown. And it is true, man is capable of many, many great and wonderful things. But there is one thing that shall never be accomplished on his own. He will never step out of this guilt before a holy God by his own works. And yet we try and we try and we try to make this God love us or to make him uh, be more drawn to us. That's not the way it works. Lay it down. He never asked you to save yourself by human effort. We are saved by grace and not by works that any man could boast. We have seen God requires obedience and illustrated before us that disobedience. And we have seen that no human effort can save us and that God does not share his throne. Thirdly, we shall see the other fault, self-worship. Verse 4 says, Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. I mean, do you hear the rebellion? Let us have our own glory. And there is a determination that we will not obey God, but we will stay right here and let's see what you're going to do about it. In fact, we'll go up and ask you because we're going to build a tower. We'll see, see each other soon. They're making a statement to the heavens. They're saying, I, I want a monument to my own glory and I'm going to build it. And people are going to remember it when they walk by this tower. They're going to say, what a marvelous people. Look at the things that they have accomplished. I want people to look at what I've done and proclaim who is like that guy. The sin that's described here is not foreign to us. In fact, it's the American dream. It's what the history books put before us. Look how great so-and-so was. It's what the monuments that have been raised of certain people speak of. It's been many the downfall of a minister. It's the thing that is idolized on television. Look at so-and-so. Be more like them. But one thing is for sure. For those who seek that glory now and worship themselves or raise up an idol, their bodies, without uh, exception, lay in the ground and are going back to dust. And none of that glory will follow them into the next life. Whatever the achievements of this life may bring, the only thing that will follow you, if you do not heed such a passage as this, or God's whole redemptive arc, Sin will follow you. The one thing you could not do <coughs> or undo without a Savior. Man was made in God's image for God's glory so that the works of our hands and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to Him. That the chief end of why you were made was to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is why let us make a name for ourselves is so wrong-headed. It's so Eden-like. Become like God. 
Satan offers. Psalm 113 says, The Lord is high above all nations and His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down? That, you know, they were building to the heavens. Look how far down He looks. Far down even on the heavens and the earth. You see, this is just another Old Testament story in the plan of redemption that gives us an example that man's best efforts, even when all the minds could come together, put their heads together and their hands together and their wills together, that nothing compares to the glory of our God who loves us. No matter of grit or labor or self-worship or self-care or ply, pride or glory could, uh, could not compare to He who rules the earth. In fact, we learned about this in Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, he's got Babylon, the greatest nation on the planet, and he walks out on his balcony and he looks over his kingdom and he says to himself, is this not great Babylon which I've built by my own power? By my own mighty power as a royal residence for who? For the glory of my majesty, he says. And while the words were still on his mouth, I mean, isn't it kind of like God, by the way? Here we are thousands of years later in Daniel and he takes us right back to the plains of Shinar where man's stumping his chest here. We go to Nebuchadnezzar, still in the land of Shinar, still people's problem. And while the words are still on his mouth, he becomes like a wild animal. His kingdom is snatched in a moment. Where's your glory now, you hairy beast with the dew on your back that roams in the wild lands? So it goes with man's glory. Self-worship is a delusion that can be shattered in a moment. Don't you feel it as your body ages? Don't you feel it when you get some sickness or there's some sickness in your family that you can't overcome by sheer will and power? It was for these people when God immediately throws them into confusion and changes their language so that they can't even be unified in effort. In the end, we see that we make very poor gods. How effortlessly God can overthrow any that are beneath Him. The fact is, they wanted a name. God has given us a name that we might rightly worship. Philippians 2 says, God has highly exalted Him. Who is the Him? It's Jesus Christ. And bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, who gets the glory? It's Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and confess that He alone is Lord. Not self-worship. And it's God's role, by the way. They wanted to give themselves a name. It's God's role to name His people, and He will do so in the next chapter. And those He sets His name upon are His.
The lesson is clear. Man's best attempts to save himself and to rise to heaven by his own merit and glory will find themselves as naked as Adam and Eve were in their shame. It is best if we learn this lesson now. God will show us his mercy in the closing verses this morning. He will show us the way of salvation. God's way. Now that's what really another list of names. I know you guys have been through a list of names in Joshua and Genesis. This list of names is important. It shows God's plan. It shows His way. It shows what He's going to be doing now for the rest of the Bible. And I, I think it's easy to overlook. Um, we shouldn't be shocked if God would have decided in a moment because of their rebellion to settle down and make a name for themselves and to worship. And even, you know, what, what king, when an enemy tries to take his throne, doesn't say, that's it, going to wipe you off the face of the planet. Oh, God's gracious. And God's way is good. He is gracious to sinners. They should have been wiped off the face of the planet because they rebelled. They didn't want him. And they didn't need him. And yet he says, I'll confuse your language. One, so that you can't talk to each other and continue to build this thing. Why? I mean, it's interesting. God says, you know, what, they could be capable of whatever. What he's really saying is, if I left them settled here in their unity, their rebellion would reach such immense heights that they would be so convinced in their glory with each other that they would have uh, no, uh, no one crying out and saying, what about God? What about what He's done? And so He's merciful in creating confusion. So He scatters them. It's interesting. He does pretty much the opposite of what they did. They tried to go up. He comes down stoops down they said we'll make a name for ourselves and he shows there's no one like god no one like me and he doesn't share his glory glory he says uh, they said we're not going to disperse we're going to stay here and he confused the language and what happens he disperses them the people united in their rebellion god will graciously separate in confusion left to their own devices their rebellion would reach staggering heights and so we have god who goes on to show what he is going to do. Graciously, 10 through 26, we're not going to read it again. But he shows a plan of redemption. Out of this kingdom, a people will be established. His kingdom on earth through the line of Abraham. Ultimately, this leads us to a people and a person where once again we will see that God condescends. God comes down. And he comes down and it doesn't look like glory. Born in a manger with no place to lay his head as he grows up and roams to and fro. But this Savior comes down. The name above every name. He who was given a name. And from this line of Abram, the Scriptures will narrow and narrow till we get to a, a, a David. Until we get to a town. Until we get to a Messiah. And then you will understand and see that there is only one way to be saved, John 14, 6. It is Jesus who says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through what? Through one name, through me. 
It's a glorious story that's set before us and God shows us the way. It's not by your obedience that couldn't save you or your self-efforts. It's not uh, because uh, we made him love us, but it's because we have looked and seen that God has a way that he is going to save his people and we have trusted in him. And it's amazing. He shows us that in Acts 2. Jesus has come, he's died, he's been resurrected, he has ascended into heaven. And the Holy Spirit falls in a room that would have been so confusing because here are all these people who speak different languages and they don't understand each other. And then all of a sudden, from tongues of fire, these apostles speak to them and they speak the glorious news that Jesus Christ, whom you crucified has been raised from the dead. And he says, there is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. And 3,000 people who uh, heard in their own language the gospel. See, Jesus Christ undoes what happens in Babel. And it is God's way. That's good news. I want you to dwell on that the rest of the day especially as your human heart has pride, as your human heart has sin, as you find it so easy to rebel, God has a way. If you want to ascend to heaven, it is by the name of Jesus Christ and Him alone. Waste no time. Waste no time in trusting in this Savior. Let's pray.